0: But in a way through. that's hard
1: to imagine a different form doing, right? So yes, yeah. the poem is able to just go punch, 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 punch and lets yes. up a bit. There are those kind of moon images and other images that give you a little bit of emotional respect but you don't have to get the whole
0: story. You don't need an explanation. You no. just have the, the image in front of you.
1: Yes. And that's a great thing that poems can do. Definitely. And welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a production of the Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. Today I have with me Sophie Van Wardenberg.
0: Van Wardenberg. <laughs> Either way, that's right.
1: <laughs> who is a a young poet, a young poetess, a young <laughs> practitioner of the posy. Oh god. <laughs> What a nightmare. Um, not <laughs> here. Now <of> <laughs> I'm Well, uh, poeting, right? For life. And in particular was with me the co-judge of the Open Book, the Geometry Open Book National Poetry Competition, which we held just last month, right? In August. Yes, it is. Uh, in honour of Phantom Bill Stickers.
0: National Poetry Day. Yes, which was August 25th. <laughs> yes. Was it? It yep. was, when we had a reading I here at the so. shop. Uh, and so
1: what we did, it was extremely exciting, what we did was we said to the world as much as we could, please send us your poems, mm-hmm. one per person, mm-hmm. and you need to be resident in New Zealand. And so then we got a whole bunch of poems sent in to us, which was really fantastic uh, and exciting, and we had a few people query whether their particular situation counted as resident in New Zealand and did they need to send us some proof, and we said, no, it's fine.
0: We do not mind. <laughs> no, we do not mind at we'll all. I believe you. And then Sophie read them all. I did. I read all of them and there were quite a few and there were quite a few good ones. And um, yeah, just, just everyone being very excited about writing poetry and sharing their lives in very short lines, which was very exciting. And then after I'd looked through all of them, we got together and we looked through the best ones of those, well, what I thought were the best ones, which of course, by definition, were the best ones because <laughs> you was the judge. <laughs> I am. I was the judge. Um, I was one of the judges, and so we looked through those again, came up with a list of nine, one winner, and eight shortlisted poems, and they are treasures, and we think they are wonderful, all in very different ways. And
1: I should say, I want to say, I don't know if Sophie wants me to say this, but we did the final judging in my bed because I was very sick <laughs> with a chest infection and I could not get out of my bed, but we needed to do this judging, but I could, I could host in bed, but Sophie's partner was also there with us to
0: chaperone. <laughs> chaperone it was a matter of great importance. The so. activities.
1: So we had a great time judging the competition. If you're listening and you were one of the people who sent in your poems, thank you so much. It was really cool. We do hope to run it again next year. And Sophie has not yet signed up to judge, but <laughs> maybe she will, maybe she won't, with her amazing judging skills. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the nine poems. We'll read one and then we'll have a quick chat about it and then we'll the other person will read one. And we did have a reading here on the 25th, which was really lovely. Some of the poets came and read their own work and we read some of the other ones and made some comments about them and it was a great way to celebrate National Poetry Day. This is a poem by a woman called Paula Harris and it is called I Eat Men Like Air and this in fact was the winning poem. I Eat Men Like Air. One. The first was a maroon dressing gown. Micro plush it whispered to me when I touched it that first time. This is just for winter I said as I wrapped it around me that night. We both sighed. Winter became spring, and still I curled into it, and not just at night, but from the moment I got out of bed, the moment I came back home. This was my first husband. One of his loops became unstitched, and I promised I'd sew it back into place that night, but I didn't. Instead, I let the tie hang from the remaining loop when it wasn't pulled around my waist. God, the nightly snuggles we had for all those years. Two. My second husband was a French pear-scented candle. He knew how to do romance. All soft, flickering light and beautiful smells. When I walked into a room, seeing him there, I would immediately relax. He would nudge my book from my hands. Just lie back, baby, and be with me. I'd turn off the overhead light and then lie back and just be with him. But for all the romance, I could never be faithful. His sandalwood second cousin would rub against my nose, and I am a weak woman, easily tempted into badness. How could I possibly resist? I would let his heaviness rest on me after, so satisfying in a way that my French pair husband could never be, even though I loved him. Even though I wanted to stay faithful to him, but there was this pomegranate candle. 3. You're married to your television, people spat at me. I smiled smugly and closed the door in their faces. He was demanding from the start. He wanted so much, do this and then this and now this and now do this and have you done this yet? And I just couldn't be fussed with all that. Somehow we got there. He spoke to me in different accents, in different languages, about all sorts of ideas Sure, books can offer you ideas, but my television would whisper them to me, would shout them to me, would light up when I entered the room if I'd been gone for more than half an hour. Mm. It's nice to have someone notice if you're not around, to lullaby you when you can't sleep. But some of the ideas grew boring. Sometimes I couldn't stand to hear him talk any more. Sometimes I wish we'd never met. 4. My new husband is a chocolate cake. Well, less of a chocolate cake and more of a recipe for chocolate cake, with all the ingredients easily at my disposal. He can be relaxed and naked, just him and the plate and cake fork and me, or he can dress up with chocolate ganache or strawberries or raspberry coulis or that bright sprig of mint worn like a pocket square for formal affairs. I can have him on the couch or in the car or at the dining table or at my computer or in bed. When I have used him up I can make more, because I always want more, and men were never able to keep up. I can lick the spoon, lick the bowl, press my finger against the crumbs and suck my finger. And when I take him in my mouth, my tongue slips around him, breaks him apart, easier to digest. So when I we wrote the judge's report together. And uh if you look on the website of the open book you will find all of these poems and also the judges report if you want to go and you could read along, in fact. And I wrote the judges report and then I sent it to Paula and Paula wrote back and said, Oh, I love that you've picked up that I'm objectifying men in this poem. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I really love I really love the four different very homely um but very humorously dealt with objects and, and the the luxury of them, but also just the humour that, that she has and, and tossing them away when she's no longer interested. I mean, I think the structure works really well with that as well because it's sort of a catalogue in four parts, four distinct parts, and it's just such a joy to read and unpick that.
1: It's, it's a strangely threatening and sort of sexy poem as well, mm. isn't it? Because you think, oh, well, she compares her husband's to a... A, a dressing gown a candle a television and a chocolate cake I mean how intense can that be but actually it's quite kind of threatening you feel like there's lack of care sometimes there's control going on there's well the infidelity with the luxury and yeah, the yeah, chocolate
0: cake is, gets eaten there's a lot of control I mean you burn the candle you wear the dressing gown like right? You, you control whether the TV is switched on or not. So I, I really like that. I really like the positioning of all of those men, <laughs> um, those nice-smelling men, and and the speaker. I mean, I, I think it just works really well in terms of humour and the voice is just carried through. I think that's what, what we um, put in the judges' report as well, is just the consistency of the energy and the voice goes uh, right to the end.
1: And that's a real craft, isn't it? I mean, that reflects someone who knows what they're doing when they sit down to write a poem and who understands when they've worked the poem enough that it's actually doing what they want it to do. So yeah. I think we both felt that there was such a lot of craft in that work. And yet it sounds very casual. It doesn't there's no really fancy words in there. You know, it doesn't sound heavily worked, but you can tell that a lot of careful attention has gone into that poem.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it takes um, such particular skill to write a lengthy poem. It's not it's not the lengthiest poem ever, um, but it's one of the most extended of all of the ones we, we uh, received in submissions. Most of them were about a page long, and that's... Nothing to say about the quality, but just being able to write several, several stanzas and and be able to keep that going through all of them. I mean, I can't really do that. I just cut my poems off um, after a page and I say that's done because I'm lazy. But I think that's really admirable.
1: I'm impressed you get to a whole page.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On a good day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. do you want to read us another poem?
0: Yes, I will. This one is by Madeleine Ballard and is called New World, 7.38 p.m. The theatre is not your house or mine, not the street just outside, where good nights and parallel parks are practised. Not work, not university, not even the theatre, no, it is the supermarket. There, under the halogen certainty of the lights, go you and I, our hands coupled. Observe us passing among the raspberries, the capsicum belfry, two enthusiastic pyramids of honey nut crunch, Here in aisle 3, we rehearse again the deliberation between jelly beans and caramel. We will buy halloumi, a samosa for the walk. We will buy peanut butter for spooning. Among the many yogurts, we attend a postmodern conversation that goes, Have we got milk? Yes. No, I mean, have we got my milk? Between two people about our age, and therefore probably cast as the foils, but we only laugh and turn to consider the frozen potato products. We stand and watch the white-hatted attendant weigh a salmon side with old-fashioned gentleness, and it is suddenly holy to examine the dishwashing liquids, eye-bright under the fluorescence, because after all, what could matter more than you selecting one to foam gigglyly over the two forks, the two bowls? Then it is time for you to browse The Economist while I browse The Bagels. And how lovely it would be to be always this way, Always in these aisles, drifting through plenty with you. Yeah, I think I think. Well, Madeline uses the word "lovely" in her poem, and it is a lovely poem. I I think that word's become quite weak over the past decade or so, but I I think it's just full of light and the familiar and the banal, but those details are really elevated. I mean, there's the frozen potato products, with, which um, resonate with me as a potato lover, and just. The, the noticing of things that's just a very precise and careful viewing of the world which I think is what poetry does and what poets do is is they choose the things that they see and the ways that they see them and they they notice the beauty or the specialness of those things so that this poem does that really well and in some ways it's a small poem but I think some of the best poems are small poems and cover a moment in the supermarket. <laughs> So, I think it it worked. um the scene of of this poem is so vivid. I mean, everyone goes to the supermarket, so of course, it is. <laughs> the
1: piece that I loved I love the most is the moment with the old fashioned gentleness with the salmon, and then she says it is suddenly holy, and that moment, I have a thing I like to say, which is about the image earning the philosophy, mm. so. You know, uh, you sit down to write a poem because you have the poetry urge and you have the poetry urge because you are in love and you have been with this person in, as she says, this moment of plenty and you've felt a, like a nimbus of joy or of light around you even in this very banal setting of the supermarket. And it is holy to be in that those moments of like perfect connection with someone. You are browsing the Economist and I am browsing the bagels, but we are together and we are happy. And, you know, look at the holiness of this. And the preciseness of all of the images in this poem give her permission to then say, and it is suddenly holy. And to me that lifts the whole poem up into the sensation that I hope listeners you have all had and certainly I have had of being with someone who is very dear to you and experiencing the world as this perfect and holy place because you're with this person who feels perfect and holy and amazing to you. So I think that it is a lovely poem and also it is a very delicately pitched but very precise and beautiful love poem.
0: Yeah, I think um, when people teach poetry often they teach um, show, don't tell which is usually a good place to start from but if you follow that through as a, a philosophy, um, as a rule to stick to, you miss out on so much. And I remember Ashley Young maybe wrote a tweet or something very small like that. But she said, I really love a good tell. And I think this poem does that. It, it shows and it tells. And if you if you don't want to say anything with your words, I feel like that's just a waste of time. That's <laughs> my position on that. So I think you have all the detail and it's very carefully layered and beautifully photographed and put through but it's accompanied by how you feel in the situation I think the balance is so important and it's just struck perfectly. Mm, that's. A, I really love that poem, it's a beautiful poem.
1: So the poem I'm going to read now is by a woman called Jilly O'Brien and it's got a long title so listen carefully listeners and if you're not clear you can pause, go to the website find it and look it's called Thalidomide 2 slash What if Rosie Moriarty Simons met Sylvia Plath by chance down Cardiff High Street? So that's the title. (laughs) Here comes the poem. Pebble in a pram. I am my young mother's treasure pocketed. Carried carefully home. Peeling back satin-edged waffle blankets freezes the smile off the passerby as we wheel by. Baby joy spills over the ground, more like a salt lick than a willow tree. That's me, infant manatee, finning through liquid love. Coming up for air, bubbling laughter through a copper still. I carry a message in that bottle, I hope. You yearn to be graded on genius, not madness. Yet you wince, spider, blanch like peas and bishops at another's sausage casing. The butch- butcher's window catching your reflection, flinching. My mouth paintings sell for fistfuls of dollars. Who else kisses your page? Who else treads colour like a grape harvest? Many moons swell and sliver since we lost the instruction booklet. But look, we made it. So I feel like this poem needs a little bit of explanation uh, yes. in reading a little bit. So for those of you who don't, aren't familiar with what thalidomide means a thalidomide baby there was a a rash not a rash um, um, many thalidomide babies in the 50s and 60s um, because it was an anti-nausea drug that was given to pregnant women but that turned out to cause really severe birth defects in their children so they were born without without limbs in some cases or without hands and quite deformed and uh, so this is imagining a thalidomide baby being wheeled along the street in Sylvia Plath meeting this baby. And one of the th- I mean, there's a few things about this poem that are really interesting to me. One, it just tackles this kind of crazy topic, right? where it goes, and what it's saying is, "Wow, if you look disturbing." How do people ever relate to you? The piece about sausage casing, another's sausage casing, is so brutal. It's oh. such a brutal thing to say about a baby. But if you see a baby that is less than perfect, you flinch. I think this is like a, certainly this is a truth for me. I mean, even a baby with a an obvious birthmark or something gives you a moment of flinching. And it, I think it's a, you know, it's an evolutionary or biological kind of response to the fear of seeing this this tiny but imperfect creature, and so about this poem, I felt that what I loved about it was the brutality of it entering into that topic, so the infant manatee thinning through liquid love, so the mother loves this baby, but other people look at it and see this you know deformed creature
0: yes i think I think there's really a some kind of psychological or cultural expectation of babies to be perfect they are new (laughs) and we can expect all kinds of things of adults but we don't expect unblemished perfection and of babies I think that's very different so yeah I I agree with what you're saying it's it's the shock and the poem delivers a shock but works itself into that the title obviously delivers the shock but the poem itself I think the, the lines pebble in a pram it's very gentle and very small like you you could hold it with kind of care and just all these different images then arise from that which are very uh, contrasted but each delivers its own kind of reaction of of flinching or or shock or yeah just kind of really subtle unexpected and I think that feeling is just somehow put through in the poem and and it it just in a way that's hard
1: to imagine a different form doing right so the poem is able to just go Punch, 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 punch. And let's yes. up a bit. There are those kind of moon images and other images that give you a little bit of emotional respect, but you don't have to get the whole
0: story. You don't need an explanation. You no.
1: just
0: have the, the image in front of you.
1: Yes. And that's a great thing that poems can do. Definitely.
0: Cool. Great. Next Next. Um, this poem is by Isabel McNeer, and it's called Robert. One summer, my dad brought me along to a christening. He sang along to every hymn and sweated. I bent my head and mumbled. I had been in a church maybe once before this, for a funeral. As we crossed the asphalt to the car, I asked him, since when did he know all the songs? Since always, he said. He went to church every Sunday, like everyone did back then. He got kicked out of choir every time he opened his mouth. I laughed because we yelled him down whenever he sang along to the radio. I tried to imagine the child who had these things happen to him, but it slipped through my hands. The impossible picture of your parent before they were your parent. We got in the car. The baked metal of our seat belts had us flinching. I asked him how was it that we could spend our lives with people and not know such simple things about them. He didn't answer. His hands were having trouble settling on the hot plastic of the steering wheel. I tried to picture the boy who would turn into my father, his throat an uninterrupted line, his cheeks smooth, standing outside a church waiting for choir to end, nudging rocks out of place with his shoes and living a life that had nothing to do with me. The days filled making a life that was wholly his, moments he would keep behind his teeth Out of embarrassment or lack of opportunity, quiet days he would forget, snapshots he would only remember because someone had a camera handy. All of them gathered into something solid, constructing the man that would one day sit next to me, grey and moustached and unknowable, swearing under his breath at the summer heat. The last poem that we talked about was about holding things, and this poem is about holding things as well. Trying to hold the idea of your parent before you existed in your mind and not being able to do that. It's sort of like a kind of fallacy, like your life pushed your parents into existence as well. And I think it's quite familiar with lots of people who have this similar relationship to their parents, of just you potter along and your parents are your parents, and then something makes you think about them being young, being your age, or or being a child and not even knowing that you would exist. This is a narrative poem. It's, it's sort of just saying the thing, <laughs> but it, it works. <laughs> it she works. Just started thumping the table. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very passionate about poetry, etc. But etc. It, but it's really vivid and quite simple, and that's often the kind of poetry that you turn to um, to try to make sense of it.
1: Uh, yeah, and I loved as a parent myself of a five-year-old and a three-year-old. It's interesting to think how it changes your relationship to your own parents when you become a parent, if you do. Partly because you think, oh my God, I did not really realise how they felt about me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Assuming that they were sort of normal parents. And you wonder how they feel about you now. And whether you know, you think, "Oh my God!" Like three is so much better than two. This is incredible. And four is so much better. I'm like, do they think, "Oh my God!" Thirty-eight, like, is just so much better than thirty-seven. This is amazing. You know, wow. What will thirty-nine be like? It's incredible. Um, uh, but but also, I'm not talking about the palm. I'm talking about myself now for a second. Um, my son, who's a real thinker and and comprehender of the world, when he was three, he turned to me and he said, "Mama." were you happy before you had children? And I was quite astonished because he grasped that the world had existed before him and that I had existed before him and that I might have had feelings that were, you know, unrelated (laughs) to him. And I said to him, well, I was happy, my darling, because I did not want children at that time, but then I wanted them and along you came and now I am even happier, Uh, which is a story about me and my wonderful son. Um, (laughs) (laughs) was wonderful, but... This poem, he also happens to be called Robert, (laughs) so this poem had a bit of an in with me from the beginning, but of course... Cheating. Yeah, that's right, but of course it resonated because it's a well put together poem, and because it tells its little story, its little vignette, beautifully, and gives us again imagery, and a little lifts itself into poetry a bit, you know, he keeps things behind his teeth, making a life that was wholly his, and... It uses language in a way that is subtle and careful and calm, but not uh, loose or you know thoughtless. And so, it's telling a little story. It's speaking about a universal experience, and it's doing that in a precise and careful way that matches the tone of the experience. So it feels very cohesive. I this really poem.
0: love reading these poems again and again. There's these few because you come across lines that you didn't understand the significance of before like I asked him since when did he know all the songs it's kind of hinting towards your parent actually knows a bit more than you let them or than you think they do and they they do have a life beyond you <laughs> they don't just know all the things that you know about them and um, I think that's a very lovely way to put it
1: yeah it's a beautiful poem okay the next one that I am going to read uh, is one called social network And it's by Kim... I haven't written her surname on here. Kim Fulton, right? Kim Fulton, yes. Yes. Kim Fulton. It's called Social Network. The owner of the wallet dropped in a downtown car park is a Samoan who loves Holden's and eating outdoors. His friend Count reveals he is no more or less gregarious than me and I wonder what else we have in common. This is how people fall in love these days, not that I have any intention of falling in love with the man in the photo on the pub table in front of me. I wonder if the last person ever to write their phone number on the back of a beer-soaked bar coaster knew they were seeing out the epoch where the speech Bogart delivered to Bergman beside the plane at the end of Casablanca was possible. And there would come a day when we could no longer really lose a person while they were breathing when we'd know exactly where the one who got away got away to and what they'd had for breakfast. Hot cakes, it turns out, with maple syrup in an antique-looking glass bottle that lends itself well to Instagram's vintage filter. It's a scene manufactured like something out of an old-fashioned film, a man sitting outside a central city cafe, sporting half a smile, not for the face behind the camera, but some far-off, unknown admirer. So this is obviously a contemporary poem, um, and you know references this little vignette of finding a wallet and then obviously looking them up on Facebook, the, the wallet's owner. Um, I'm sure we all have a soft spot for the scene at the end of Casablanca.
0: Where... See, you no, w- you would if you'd seen it. Oh, um, my. but. There's some very young people participating in this
1: podcast. Well, I've been alive for very long. Oh, no, that's right. You have not got to the important
0: part of I humanity. I shall educate myself.
1: Well, let me tell you, it's an amazing movie, you go uh, and there's that amazing front lawn song about it, which I guess you don't know either. Claude Rains gave the order. Oh, Gracie's nodding. <laughs> Gracie's Gracie. sharing great knowledge. Yeah, yeah Gracie okay, is. Well, um, I'll I'll figure it out. Gracie is a silent presence across the room, which is <laughs> more knowledgeable than Sophie. She's put her few extra years to good use on this planet. knowledgeable and older. Yes. <laughs> if you haven't seen Casablanca, go and watch it. This is your piece of advice, and think about what you would do in those situations. Uh, but to go back to the poem, I really like the line the two lines and there would come a day when we could no longer really lose a person while they were breathing because it says well we do lose people still in a way that is totally irrevocable when they stop breathing they are gone from us so we live in this sense of our infinite connection and you can think about a friend you haven't seen for two years and you can message them immediately and say hey this happened to me how are you Uh, but still the finality of death exists and that's what that line brings into this poem and to me lifts the poem up from being just a little story into being a poem that has something to say about the nature of human existence (laughs) which is what poetry is here for yeah but don't
0: don't say that I really like this I think lots of people write poetry or write essays or whatever and they just turn into spiels about Social media and the dangers of it, and how communication is, you know, going down the toilet, etc. Young people do not watch classic movies anymore. Because yeah, they're just on and Twitter. everything's going to burn, and unless we all watch Casablanca, apparently. I think this is just—it's—it's it's one of those noticing poems, and it's about how to be in a world like this where we all are connected and we can all find out so much about each other. But it's—it's it's not really. One of those, you know, sci-fi, the world is doomed because of Facebook kind of poems, which just get very tiring and old. I really admire that there's because there's these concrete details, and I am in love with the concrete detail. But the maple syrup, the yeah, the hotcakes, and the very concrete grounding at the cafe or at the pub, or you know, all of these concrete details just really make you understand what the speaker is is. wanting or or confused by yeah, obviously, yeah, that basically what I'm just trying to say it's not a damning anti-Facebook poem, which I don't think really works, or I haven't found one that works yet (laughs) No, and there's probably something there
1: about poetry Good poetry being better at appreciating and making subtle points than it being a polemic, which is not to say that there is anything wrong with polemics, but that it is hard to combine them with poetry. Yes, polemic is
0: is sort of a genre of its own. The the anti-poem. Yes. (laughs) I mean, we did get many, many submissions that did very different things. Obviously, it's just our subjective preferences that, that brought these forward, but I think all of them do deal a lot with the concrete and do deal with perception and uh, attention and and what people think and what they want, but not in a, you know, shoving it in your face kind of way. I mean, I do also love poems that shove it in your face, so there we go. Poems are good, generally.
1: Yeah, poems! Upward <laughs> <with> poems! <laughs> Just write also, more! Also, I, I, I noticed there's a lot of love
0: in these poems as well, yeah, isn't definitely. there? Yeah, definitely. Right? So I there's... remember you saying at one point that you thought that all love poems, or all, all, you wanted to write a book where all the poems were love poems, and that's how you... Near knew it would be a good book of poetry or, or something like that. And I think, yeah, writing a love poem can be very hard if it's actually not about someone that you're in love with, but should be done.
1: Hear, hear. Sophie's drinking from a very tiny glass, <laughs> a miniature glass. I'm a miniature kind of person. Yeah, you
0: know, she's
1: not it. a large person and she has a very small glass. In
0: terms glass. of height, yeah. In terms
1: of brain power, however, <laughs> enormous... I can barely sit close to you for the size of your brain. Oh,
0: I really do apologize. Continue with the poetry, <laughs> right, please. And you attend <laughs> to read. Is it? Okay, yes. great. That's um... why we're
1: filling in whilst you fiddle around <laughs> with your sheets of paper. Also, I've just noticed, I've just noticed Gracie's t-shirt. And listeners, I must stop <laughs> the poetry to describe Gracie's t-shirt because, it has a moon on it, like a proper, you know, with craters and things, full moon. And then it has it's black. And then it has a scattering of little stars around that. So the full moon is sort of, you know, a saucer size. And then it has three cat heads (laughs) in realistic view. And they look by turns grumpy, curious grumpy and afraid grumpy. Well, it is grumpy cat. It's grumpy cat. Yes. Kids. It's Grumpy Cat.
0: So I don't know if you remember Grumpy Cat from about five years ago.
1: I well, I saw Grumpy Cat just the <laughs> other day on our workplace thing. And Gracie, what a t-shirt! Would you like to say anything about your t-shirt? Uh, thank you very much. It's technically
0: a pajama shirt, so uh, technically, don't judge me for wearing my pajamas to your podcast. But I'm very fond of this t-shirt. <laughs> it's
1: incredible. I, I do all
0: three of the cats, very <laughs> and the moon. <laughs> i don't know if
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if we've picked any of that up, but as you two both know i also have a t-shirt that's actually a pajama shirt that i like to wear and you've got the i've same, got the same shirt you've got the same shirt Sophie. but i do wear it as a pajama shirt you wear it as a pajama shirt, shirt and it's got eyelashes over one's breasts, so that it looks as if one has very bulbous and misplaced eyes i'm
0: really enjoying all this because we're going to cut it out and it's just like a historical um report of us and this we're moment. not
1: cutting out the bit about grace's t-shirt because it's incredible Okay. But I think you should leave in the part about your pyjama shirts because they come with a sticker on them that says...
0: Soft, soft touch, touch, feel, feel me. me, yeah. <laughs> mm, that's just
1: been made uh, of that. Who can resist? Who can? Right, where have you stuck the sticker? <sighs> <laughs>
0: that's very dangerous. Okay, <laughs> everyone be quiet. This next poem is by Amanda Hunt and it's called Cutting Pumpkins in Botswana. Kneeling tonight on the kitchen floor, attacking a stone-faced pumpkin with a meat cleaver, I am reminded of a friend who once visited Botswana and found the people there far wiser in the ways of gourds, which, ripening sooner in a warmer climate, are softer and more yielding at harvest and, should the skins prove stubborn, have machetes more readily to hand. And how once, leaving a market, he watched a woman walk with slow, unhurried grace, a pumpkin balanced on her head, barefoot on the red dust road, her small child following just behind, and when the boy tripped, knelt and scooped him up, not breaking stride, and the pumpkin stayed in place the whole time. And of another friend, a surgeon, who would recite cautionary tales of human versus pumpkin a messy epidemiology of injured limbs and severed severed digits. He would not allow them in the house, and of my mother whose tactic was to hurl the pumpkin down the back porch steps and more than once resorted to the axe in the woodshed, leaving the chopping block stained orange, wet, macerated flesh, mashed in amidst the splinters. And I study the truculent Queensland blue, which has foiled my efforts once more, rolling away to land right side up, as they always do, poised on a jaunty angle in the corner, and on the polished timber floor, a new score, pumpkin one, human zero. I think this is one of the friendliest poems that we have chosen just because it's like hearing someone just share a, a rambly sort of story at a dinner time or something. And I really hope that didn't sound rude because I love it. It's comforting in the way that it invites you in. I do love poems like this that just follow one picture, one object through several variations. It's It's sort of like the musical structure where you have variations on a theme. And, yeah, and and the, of course there's humour in it. It doesn't take itself too seriously, and it is about pumpkins, so it, it shouldn't. <laughs> and I, re- I really like that kind of balance.
1: One of the things I really liked about this poem was the movement in it. So the bit where there's a woman with a pumpkin balanced on her head, barefoot and her small child following, and she kne- kneels and scoops him up without breaking stride. And so you get that little piece of movement, human Mm -hmm. movement in the poem, and then where the mother throws the pumpkin down the back porch steps, and then the pumpkin rolls away from the writer. Mm -hmm. And I think movement in poetry is really interesting. When I was studying, I got stuck at one point, as one does, in the middle of a year of trying to write poems. And... I went to see Jim Galvin, who was my poetry teacher at the time, and he said to me, "I remember it was it was a snowy day. It was a very snowy day. We were upstairs in this place called the Dye House in Iowa, which is a old, very large old house that had become sort of where all the uh, teaching was done. And we were in this big, sort of wood panelled room, looking out onto this." crazy snowy landscape that's so unfamiliar to a New Zealander and he said to me you need to get some movement into your poems and then he showed me an incredible Wallace Stevens poem that I think is called The Wild Cat and uh, or The Fire Cat Mm. and it's about the fire cat and the bucks clattering and the fire cat swerves to the left and the bucks swerve to the right and he said look at this poem just go away and look at this poem and I've really noticed movement in poetry since then and it stops the staticness or the sort of academic sense or the sense that you're just kind of making an object that then sits there inertly. Yes. So I love those moments of movement in I, this poem.
0: I think that um often there's the preconception that poems and poets are very ponderous. And they are <laughs> mm, We are we we, we, we walk true. heavily. Yes. We thump. Yes. Um and I think there's there's a general feeling that poems spend a long time often a ridiculously long time on one thing very closely and this poem does that but also it yeah it invites energy into it and it's always moving and and vital yeah I'm quite jealous actually it's a good
1: poem it's a good poem we picked good poems I think we did right so this next uh, poem and this is the last one that I'm going to read and then Sophie's got one more to read after this is called MRI and it's by Amy Jane Anderson O'Connor, uh, It was a woman with many hyphens in her name. Two hyphens in her name. Only two. Only, Only two. two. One for the first name and one for the second and name. And an apostrophe. And an apostrophe, that's right. She's doing very well. And she has some other letters in there as well, but she's got some unusual glyphs, is what we're saying.
0: Yes, lots of unusual glyphs. got to this... have those as
1: a poet. That's right, which is the sort of thing that a poet wants to say when they look at a name. Look at those wonderful unusual g- glyphs. <laughs> anyway... Hopefully, there are some other poets listening to this so they oh, are equally excited by so. what we've found. <laughs> uh, so, this poem is called MRI, as in, you know, the scanning machine. MRI. I dream that they lather me in margarine and slide me into the yawning arch. I dream that Braveheart is my doctor and he keeps asking me, Do you have any metal in you? But I can't answer through the silver chewing gum wrappers scrunched like walnuts in my cheeks. I dream that I do not fit, that I'm stuck halfway like a caterpillar mid-chrysalis, that the amalgam, amalgam? amalgam in my molars curls up and aches. The speakers froth with static and the nurse puts on a scuba mask. The whole place fills with water, and my breasts deflate and float to the top of the room like those plastic bags that the sea turtles keep eating. So this is obviously a medical poem, which you know, interesting moments, and it includes a dream, which can be, I think, quite difficult. Quite alienating, it can be. But it isn't a lazy dream here. It's got something to tell us about the poem. I think, I, I don't know if you've ever had an MRI, Sophie, but I've been lucky enough to have a few in my life. Ray. And it's not wonderful. <laughs> uh, it's very, very loud. You are stuck in there and they give you a little panic button. But, of course, if you press the panic button, well, they'll take you out, but you are then just going you to have to go, to go back, back, back in, in again. Yes, and indeed. it's very close around uh, mm. your head. So writing this poem, I think, is getting some of the experience of how disembodying it is to be inside a machine that is scanning you that you really have very little control or agency of and it is if parts of you are floating off and you are becoming you know something that a sea turtle might eat or you've wandered into a dream with brave heart because you have to try and cope with all of the normal human things that you do move and speak and you know, wear your wedding ring and um, all kind of taken off you as you lie in this tiny little chamber being incredibly intensely examined by the blasts of magnetic resonance or whatever they are that are blasting at you. So I love that this poem gives some of the feeling of that and also brings the wider world into that very claustrophobic little room.
0: Yeah, I think it's the claustrophobia that really comes across because it's so condensed with all these bizarre details, but they're not bizarre to the point of absolute raucous humour, they're just bizarre because how terrible would it be if that happened to you, but also you don't really mind because you're dreaming. I have less accurate things to say about MRIs because um, I haven't had one, but in my early teens I watched a lot of House MD, which was a very stupid... Well, doesn't try to be stupid, it's quite funny. Um, TV show starring Hugh Laurie. It's brilliant. And, Anything um, with
1: Hugh Laurie in is okay by me. I just just Whilst we're doing TV commentary, yes. I just want to say, if you have not watched all of Jeeves and Worcester... I have You need some. to go and do it because it is all wondrous. I think I've watched
0: do, all do, of Blackadder. <laughs> I really love him. Um, I, having watched a lot of House um, and having watched... Um, the situation in which people have MRIs, but they've got metal in them, and oh, how terrible it is! I've all I've thought about um, if I ever had to have if I ever have to have an MRI is, what if I accidentally have a piece of metal and then I will blow up, which I think is very scientifically accurate. So I think that yeah, there's that dread associated with such a claustrophobic and yeah depersonalizing medical experience, and I mean there are a lot of other medical experiences similar, and I think. Yeah, just taking a human and the bizarre into their experiences, really, really, quite. It's quite a special poem. It just, it just fits so much into it. Um, but and that walnut, scr- the
1: scrunched in the chest yes. walnut <laughs> image is, is amazing, right? And you, it takes you like cartoonish, the... but it is perfectly it is. so. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it's a really, it's a good poem. Right, the final poem that you are going to read. The
0: Final poem that I'm going to oh. read is by Ruby Porter, and it's called "A List of Dreams." See, we're following a theme here in these final two. A list of dreams. On Wikipedia, there is a list of dreams. A man invented the sewing machine from a nightmare. His cannibals had holes in the tips of their spears. Watson saw a spiral staircase spinning the double helix and a French man found found benzene in a dream about snakes swallowing each other's tails. I never dreamt of you much. I mean nothing by that. Except that maybe I loved you, before I knew you, and not much after. In the US, a penny and a nickel cost twice their worth to mint. We all lose something daily. We all lose something daily. I'm not bitter. The cost of you was not that high. I've turned round the mirror on my bedside table, stood on scales for the first time in years. In a way, it's all my doing.' In Massachusetts, a woman with an itchy scalp scratched right through to her brain. You always fingered too hard, never knew which bus to catch, and this time, my breakup song was I Don't Fuck With You by Big Sean and E-40. Once, a town was struck by inexplicable dancing. The plague lasted a month. Several died on their feet, danced right to death. You taught me that. You can mix purple and brown to get a black darker than black. I taught you that. In New York, the penalty for jumping off a building is death. In New York, the penalty for jumping off a building is death. Last night, I dreamt that you were peeling off my skin, starting at my fingertips, stopping only to tie knots in my veins. Or maybe that was me, but it was you, you, I know it, who left me for a man at a public swimming pool, that lit your mouth full of gravel and words we don't know. Honey, they weren't real, I promise. I simply screamed goodbye and jumped in with my jeans on. Earth is the only place that isn't named after a god. Caligula was kicked from the heavens by Jupiter. A day before his assassination and Abraham Lincoln dreamt of his death, he could hear mourners for three nights in a row. For three nights in a row, he could hear mourners. But room after room he found empty until he came to the one with his own body laying straight. In Chicago, a man faked his death certificate to get out of a cell phone contract. Please let me off easy. I think that's possibly my favourite final line or final stanza of um, all the poems that we've dwelt on tonight. just this problem is is the structure of it just consistently matching um you know these these facts, these you know Wikipedia paragraphs with um the speaker's own life and the the very personal detail and feeling um that is imbued and I think it's it's it sort of conveys that it's imbued in what you feel when you read these things and you you match them onto your own life and obviously lots of this, these wikipedia articles are um, quite vivid and not always in pleasant ways or hardly ever in pleasant ways. For example, the woman uh, scratching right through to her brain because her head is a bit itchy. Uh, I feel like we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Metaphorically, we've all been there, right? And see, just like, us poets. That's but... how this poem works because I think there's this really, I mean, I, I catch myself doing it very, very often. Um, it's very annoying where you see something that's, very much not you and you say oh that's me when you see like someone spent 70 pounds on pizza this year you say oh that's me even though it's not you and you didn't you match it to yourself because you have the potential within you <laughs> to do such stupid things and but sadly not the economic no, resources no you don't but there's someone out there that does it for you and i think that's what wikipedia offers us is all these circumstances all of these bizarre details that you can bring into your own life now because there's a sense of proximity to them and finding them out yourself very easily.
1: Which goes again to that bit about the social network and mm. you know, nobody's far away and no experience is far away. And I noticed this again, let me speak of myself, not of the poem for a moment, but when I was In fifth form, year, let's say, 11, Mm -hmm. I was 15, and I was doing schools debating. And when you wanted to find out something about a topic, you would go to the library (laughs) and you would get um, ask the librarian, like the the large public library, and you would ask the librarian for a CD, and on the CD would be a list of articles, and you could search the whole list of articles for whatever topic you were after, (laughs) and a few articles would come up, and then you would request them, and then the librarian would have them photocopied in some other library so or something so many steps involved. it was incredible and like a week later you could go back and pick them up and you would have four random articles two of which were useful and two of which turned out to be absolutely and nothing took relevant you a whole
0: week. and that was all you could find out about the topic and whereas now you can find out the things that you don't even need to know yeah
1: instantly yes. and i just think about that so often when the the whole world feels so much closer. When it is so much easier to find out about. Yes. And, and I think that's kind of what you're saying about this poem. One of the other things that I really liked about this poem was that it was um, quite poemy in places. So it repeats some things a couple yes. of times, which I really like because it's saying, listen to this. Yes. Uh, and notice. And also, I'm not afraid to be a little bit showy. It's not a showy poem, but no. it does some things that are not natural writing. <laughs> They um, are deliberately poem-y writing.
0: Yes, and I mean, that's what poetry is for. And this it does those things very starkly. The, the repetitions are not, you know, carefully worked in. They just, you repeat a line. You just chuck it in there. And, and I think there's, there's a lot of bravery in that kind of writing. Um, and the lines are very short, usually. And there's hardly any punctuation. Um, and... It doesn't dedicate itself to the cadence of a sentence sometimes. And yeah, I think all of those sort of poemy things. In this poem, that is very stark. It just hammers in that kind of um, incessant voice with those repetitions of being lonely or being broken up with or having all of these ideas in your head that you don't know what to do with um, and all of these things that you can't get rid of. And yeah, just the starkness of conveying that to... Not only the person that's being talked to, but all of us who are reading it.
1: (laughs) And it's almost uh, the inverse of Madeline's poem. Yes. Which is a very small setting and a very joyful feeling. And this is, the world is the setting. I'm grabbing all of these crazy pieces and I relate to all of them because... They are about being broken and I, or abandoned, and I feel broken or abandoned in this poem. And probably, again, we can all kind of relate to that, the moment where instead of the whole world being perfect and joyful and beautiful because you are with the perfect and joyful and beautiful person who loves you, the whole world is bizarre and inexplicable and brutal and kind of awful because the person you thought was... The joyful, beautiful person who loved you has said I'm sorry I've met this guy. At the no, swimming pool. Thank you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I'm off. Yes. Wow. That was a cheery one to end on, thank you, Ruby. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that we've probably said enough now. Do you have anything else you feel like
0: you want to say? No, I something? agree. And I've been on several spiels that are not really useful to anyone. But I all I want to say is that it's been a great honour to read your poetry, everybody, if you're actually listening. And it's I know that it's a very scary thing and a very precious thing to send out your work into the world because not only is it very personal to you, but it's economical as well. A poet can only write so many good poems and you want them to be published, so often you don't submit to competitions or publications. So it's it's really great that we got so many in. And yeah, we'd love to do this kind of thing again. It's just been really revealing the kind of differences between all the poets that are surrounding us in our little country.
1: Thank you so much, Sophie. I really appreciated having uh, your company in this judging. Oh,
0: thank you for the invitation. Exercise. It's
1: <laughs> been such a joy, and I see our taste lines up very well together, which That's I think we probably possibly knew. quite dangerous. Well, but yes. you know, so be it. This is, our, <laughs> this is this is not a democracy. This is our own little no, freedom of, yes. of poetry. So yes, yeah, so it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, and I echo that thanks to all the poets. So this has been Ears Wide Open, uh, a project of the Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. If you are in Auckland, come down and see us. On the third Sunday of most months, we have a reading at three o'clock. Sometimes it's at a slightly different time, but you can find that on our Facebook page. Uh, And we're always here, open every day. The garden is here. The books are here. The coffee is here. The table is here. The Wi-Fi is here. Everything you could possibly need, the peace and quiet are here. So come down and have a look. Uh, If you're not in Auckland, uh, you could look on our website and subscribe to the My Book Bag service where you have books handpicked for you and sent out to you uh, on a monthly or every couple of months basis.